Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Club. We're exploring American food in a way this week. We're talking about an expansive version of American food. Our guests this hour pull from the culinary traditions of their parents and grandparents to make food that is personal and connects them to their roots. Later in the show, we'll meet two home cooks in our region competing in the PBS cooking competition, The Great American Recipe. They'll share their backstories of the signature dishes they made in episode one, which was titled, If I Were a Recipe. That should give you an idea of how personal these dishes are. But first, in 2019, our first guest, Chef Kwame Anwachi, published a memoir called Notes from a Young Black Chef. It was a brutally honest account of Kwame's personal and culinary journey in the restaurant industry up to that point. He was 29. The culinary historian, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, called it, quote, kitchen confidential from a Black point of view. People in the food world ate it up. In 2019, Kwame was named Rising Star Chef of the Year at the James Beard Awards. This past June, Kwame hosted the awards ceremony. I'll talk with him later in the show about what that meant to him. Before we get to that, Chef Plum asked Kwame to help us understand the culinary influences he explores in his first cookbook, a natural companion to his memoir. It's called My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef. Chef, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. You opened the book with Show Me an America Made of Apple Pie and Hot Dogs and Baseball and Chevrolet, and I won't recognize it. We talk a lot on the show about culinary heritage. What's yours? My culinary heritage is obviously directly, you know, linked to my parents, um, but also to like my parents' parents. My background is Afro-Caribbean. My grandfather is from Nigeria. My grandmother, this is on my dad's side, is from Jamaica on my mom's side. My grandmother is Creole and my grandfather is from Trinidad and Tobago. So my culinary heritage is all of that, starting in West Africa, going through the Caribbean to the American South and telling the story of, of how those places like came to be. And I try to do that through food. Yeah. I have a lot of Southern roots in my food. So, you know, when you go Southern roots, it kind of hits everything. It feels like you said the Bronx contains multitudes and, and that your mother's home cooking was the food of the American South and it's black sons and daughters. Can you describe the food of your childhood and how it changed when you were sent to Nigeria to live with your grandfather when you were 10? Yeah, I mean, I, I lucked out. I didn't realize how good I ate until I went to my first sleepover. And I was like, where is the seasoning <laughs> yeah. in this food? And why is it overcooked? Why aren't things cooked properly? Um, my mom, she's a chef. And she always prided herself on making everything from scratch. We had a lot of like Southern dishes, you know, smothered pork chops, smothered chicken, salmon cakes for, for breakfast on Sunday, etouffee. We also had jerk chicken and, and oxtails and curry goat. At my father's house, we had like Nigerian pepper soup. We had agusi soup. It was, it was a lot of different things. But then also, I was a peculiar child. So if we were watching Silence of the Lambs, I was like, I need to try liver and onions. So where are we going tonight for dinner? And we would try it. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't like it as a kid. But um, but yeah, it was uh, my, my childhood was just filled with so many different cultures. And then when I went to Nigeria, I think... It was the first time it connected 
to me to really respect our food. We had our own livestock and I made the mistake of naming all of these chickens and goats. So when it was time to slaughter, it, it hit very close to home. And my grandfather made sure that I saw what was happening because our food did not just come from these plastic containers. You know, they came from live, live animals and we needed to respect that. How do those early influences shape your cooking today? They were astronomical in, in response to the way that I cook today. My mom had a catering company that she operated from the house. So very much against the law, she threw me an apron at five years old and I had to help out to keep the lights on. Yeah. Um, and I was doing, you know, menial tasks, peeling shrimp, fabricating vegetables, you know, stirring, stirring the roux for the gumbo. But it gave me this like flavor bank, really. Traveling when I was young to Nigeria, you know, eating at all these different restaurants when I was a kid, like having my mom make everything from scratch. Like I had this Rolodex of like what I thought food should be mm -hmm. um, at its base level, no matter what, what ethnicity of food I'm eating. So, so yeah, I think it, it prepared me to just like season my food, know, know when things are cooked properly at the very least. So when I started attempting it myself at an older age, I, I had this, this base level, this foundation that I think is, is kind of unique in this industry. I tell home cooks and young culinarians all the time, learn to season your food. It's three quarters of the fight. It is. If you overcook a piece of steak, not saying that I liked it, but like if you have a ribeye that's overcooked or well done, but it's seasoned really, really well, you're going to eat it. Right. A hundred percent, you're going to eat it. There's so many, especially in my family, like, and I think in black culture, like we don't really eat things medium rare like that. So like if you go to a lot of the people's houses or cookouts, like you're going to have steak that's well done. It's not going to be dry, but it's just going to be well done. But it's going to be seasoned mm -hmm. to perfection. <laughs> <laughs> and you can get through that thing 100%. It's uh, what's the old the old term they used to say in, in French cooking? You're a shoemaker if you make your yes. steaks leather and, and no uh, no seasoning on shoemaker. it. Shoemaker. That's what um, one of my culinary teachers call all of us shoemakers. That's exactly where I'm going, actually. Yeah, you're all a bunch of shoemakers because uh, one of the things we have in common is that we both went to the Culinary Institute of America. Your mother was hoping you'd learn discipline in Nigeria, but there's no discipline quite like you learn as a chef training in classic French at CIA. It's almost military, and you know, it's crazy. It is. You can't even take a sick day. No. Like, or you fail. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's brutal. It's probably changed now now that the industry's changing, but yeah, the school definitely has changed a little bit. But what was your experience like there? For me, it was a discipline I desperately needed at that point in my life. It made an impact, a big impact on me. Yeah. You know, I learn kind of like when I want to learn <laughs> and it's something that I always needed. But since I cared so much about food and I didn't want to disappoint my professors or my mom or anything in that realm, like I can give two about grades in other schools, like math, fail me. I don't care. Science, right. I'm not even showing up. English, you'd be damned if I give you any paper. <laughs> um, but culinary school, I was excited about learning all these different sauces and all these methods and all the pots and pans and um, and showing up on time and, you know, having the best grade. I wanted to be the best cook. I wanted you know, I looked at it as like, these are the this is the future of America. So if I can be the best here, then I can be the best outside of here. It was really, really important for me. And it whipped me into shape. Yeah, they don't play games. You're to be where you're told to be 10 minutes early. If you're if you're on time, you're late. Yep. They don't play games. and But, you know, that's kind of the industry, you know? It is. Absolutely. As you were researching the origins of the food from your heritage, you wrote, I began to enlarge my idea of who my people were and where my place was. 
how how has writing this cookbook helped you understand who you are right now? Yeah, you know, the recipe part was relatively easy. It was it was a lot of work, don't get me wrong, but like putting together this list of things that I ate, things that my family makes was was relatively easy. It was the search and the quest for like who I was within those pages which was more enlightening because I had to go back to Nigeria, you know, and I had to touch that land and I had to taste the food again. I had to go to Trinidad and Tobago with my grandfather and walk the paths that he walked. I, I went to Louisiana, I went to Mamu, Louisiana with my grandmother and saw where she grew up. So it connected me more to my family and it showed me where we really come from and and the snapshot in history that these dishes are. You know, you look at a dish like oysters and pearls from Thomas Keller. You know, that that's a dish that's that is like his dish. I I'm not I don't want to take anything away from that because it is an amazing dish, but it doesn't tell the story of like what's happening in history at that point in time. But if you look at a dish like curried goat or jerk chicken or shrimp etouffee, these are snapshots in history of like okay, who were the people that were either stolen or like indentured servants or even like on a trade route that came through here that brought their spices that then married it with the the meat that was available at the time you know what i mean like i loved discovering the etymology of these dishes because they're snapshots in history there's not one person that's like taking the credit there's no like if you go to a jamaican museum there's not the person that invented curry goat on the wall it, it's it's about what was happening at that time and i thought that that was so beautiful wow that's really deep and that's pretty cool i never thought about it like that <laughs> that's great knowing that your culinary influences are afro-caribbean southern nigerian and we know that you love indian food as well you must have the best spice cabinet in the entire world <laughs> normally i do i'm in new york right now and i have like salt, pepper, and all-purpose seasoning, which is which is all you really need. But I normally, yeah, my, my spice cabinet is pretty extensive and very organized and labeled in like these pop-top containers and everything. Well, when home cooks say I'm ready to cook from my America, from your book, what spices and pantry staples do you recommend they get if they don't have them already? And what are the essentials if people want to cook Kwame style? So I have my mom's house spice. I think that's like uh, an essential. It's an all-purpose or Creole seasoning. You can actually get it on Spiceology.com. Fantastic And company. then as well as my toasted curry powder, you can get that on Spiceology. So I would say those two are really good to have in, in the repertoire. And then make sure you have some ginger garlic paste on hand as well, because that goes in a lot of stuff. And I, and I got that from India, and I put that in a lot of, a lot of my food seems pretty simple. I like that. And by the way, Spiceology, great company. I'm good friends with Tony Reed. He's a buddy of mine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's a homie. Yeah. So one pantry staple people can make at home is hot sauce. And I love hot sauce. I consider myself a bit of a hot sauce expert. I judge New York hot sauce expo every year, reluctantly. Uh, can you walk our listeners through your Louisiana style hot sauce? Yeah. So mine, I wouldn't say it's like traditional, traditional Louisiana hot sauce where they're like, you know, fermenting it in barrels for God knows how long and using Tabasco chilies. I use like a fresh stance, but it's uh, it's vinegar based with, you know, fresh peppers and aromatics as well cooked down. So it's like bright red. It's acidic, but it has a lot of flavor that I love with fresh hot sauces than the ones that sit there and get like super, super acidic. You can use it to season your food and it will like 
coat whatever you're making like a nice beautiful sauce right it's funny i think people don't realize too how easy it is to make a hot sauce i mean mm-hmm. and you don't have to let them ferment like you said you can just cook it down blend it up call it done yeah i love those better i think that you can taste the nuances of the flavors mm-hmm. more like the, the garlic the onion even the the fruitiness of the pepper itself right. so it lends a little bit of sweetness to it without adding sugar and i love that yeah i do too i, just, I love hot sauce i put hot sauce on everything i mean yeah. everything yeah a good hot sauce you can put on everything mm-hmm. i think there's certain hot sauces that are only for certain things right it doesn't have to light you up either it doesn't no no it can add just a lot of flavor and um and heat so one reason i want to ask you about the hot sauce louisiana style hot sauce is because your grandma cassie was born in louisiana and she's such a positive character in the book so influential on your cooking is there a recipe in the book that's like most representative of grandma cassie i would say her zucchini bread she makes this bomb zucchini bread that she she grows the zucchinis in her garden and grates them, squeezes all the, the the water out, and makes makes this really really good zucchini bread. And that's what I look forward to eating when I go to her house. Yeah, that sounds great. And before we move on from hot stuff, I got to bring up too your Nashville hot chicken recipe in the book. Great recipe. I was recently in Nashville, and I I walked in the door in Nashville because there's a door in Nashville. I made that up, but yeah. walked right in. Immediately went to Prince's and got always the hottest, hottest, hottest they had. And chef, I got to tell you, I was eating it. I was sweating, but my lips were cold, and I heard goats. There was no goats there, but I heard them. <laughs> <laughs> you heard them, and then you saw one like standing on on the fan. Because you know yeah. they jump on weird things. Uh, <laughs> it's just standing there, just standing on the fan. That's funny. Um, yeah, Prince's is a must go. Like everyone says, all these other places, and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nah, man. I go to Prince, and I go to um, Bolts. Bolts Hot Fish. I just got to stick with the OG when I hit Nashville, for sure. Hot chicken's the way to go. If you haven't tried it, the recipe's in the book. It's a great recipe. Thank you, man. Yeah, with the bebede, with the Ethiopian spice blend. Yeah. Unbelievable. You're listening to our conversation with Chef Kwame Onwachi. His memoir made him famous, and his first cookbook is out now. It's called My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef. Later in the hour, we have some fun with two home cooks from our region who competed in the PBS cooking show, The Great American Recipe. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, more of my conversation with Kwame. We'll talk about the dish he calls the grandfather of American barbecue and why he thinks it's important to tell the stories behind the food we eat. That's how we keep these dishes alive, by telling these stories and making sure that people know exactly where where their food came from and, and the how and the why behind it. There's so much history in a plate of food. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending the first half hour of the show getting to know Chef Kwame Anwachi through his cookbook, My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef. In 2019, this graduate of the Culinary Institute of America earned a James Beard Award as a rising star chef. And it's safe to say that start has officially risen. Kwame is an author, a former contestant on Top Chef, now a recurring judge, and he's an executive producer at Food & Wine. The places that shaped Kwame's cooking are the Bronx, Louisiana, and Nigeria. That's where we pick up the conversation. We've talked about your grandma. Now I'd like to talk about a recipe connected to your Nigerian grandfather. You would smell suya wafting over the walls of your grandfather's compound. Suya, you say, is the grandfather of American barbecue. Describe this dish for our listeners and what the characteristics that make it an ancestor of American barbecue. Yeah, you know, um, the Hausa tribe, you know, started serving suya. It's a tribe in um, in Nigeria, mostly of Muslim descent. And they'll take beef, goat, ram, you know, chicken, whatever, and slice it thin and toss it in this yaji spice. And it's a uh, ground nut, so like close to a peanut that's like, uh, pulverized and then fried so it kind of dehydrates so then you can blitz it into a powder and then yeah. you add grains of paradise dehydrated beef was used like in the past but you know now it's like maggie cube or bouillon cube uh-huh. um, that was pulverized and you know ginger lots of chili like cayenne something super spicy garlic powder onion powder and salt and you toss that into the meat and then you grill it over an open flame with firewood and um and you just serve it with like raw tomatoes and onions. And it's something that you eat like as a snack, like after the club, people will eat it. You'll eat it throughout the day. Um, really? So it's it's the grandfather of barbecue. Yeah. I'm reading the recipe right now as you're talking about it, which is what I was looking at here. And I, I love that in the book here, you, you have chicken thighs, which is, I, I think it's important to express to people. If you're going to do something, you're going to cook chicken, thighs are the way to go. Always. Always the way to go. Or the leg thigh quarter. That that's That's pretty much it. Yeah, no doubt about it. This sounds delicious. I want to go make this now for dinner tonight. That might be good. <laughs> it's pretty fire. The raw onions and tomato, though, that's an interesting like side to have with it. Yeah, I don't like the raw onions and tomatoes, so I pickled them a little bit for the book. Um, there you go. But, but that's just what they eat over there. It's kind of like India. They eat raw onions and tomatoes as well with their food. Right. So throughout the book, you give us a lot of history on the origins of staple crops and dishes in Trini, Nigerian, American South cuisines. Why do you think it's important to share the stories behind where these ingredients and dishes came from? I think you get a greater understanding for, for food when you understand the story. You know, when a dish tells a story, it has a soul. You're not just cooking for perfect seasoning. You're cooking to share something with someone. And I think that's how we keep these dishes alive, by telling these stories and making sure that people know exactly where, where their food came from and, and the how and the why behind it. There's so much history in a plate of food in an ingredient. So if you can get down to that base level, I think you'll just have a greater appreciation for food. And, and it's, it's just more interesting. One of my mentors, Chef Lonnie Hewitt, used to always tell us, he was big on this, and he would always say, you'll never know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Exactly, 
Exactly. And, uh, that stuck with me my whole life. I love that whole like just understanding where this food came from. Why are we eating this? You mm-hmm. know, everything has a story, and some of them are just really fun to read and learn about. It does, yeah. And and also like there's there's a reason why we have all these ingredients. I think if you can equip yourself with with all this knowledge, it'll just make you a better human being in general. Um, you know, n- nothing to do with cooking at, at all, but just as being a citizen of the world. Yeah, no doubt. What's the recipe development process for you when you're playing around with a classic? Any pressure to stick to what your elders might consider authentic? Oh, I do. I stick to it. But I also like if I'm going to be using ginger and garlic in it, then why not use a ginger garlic paste or ginger garlic puree? If I'm using chicken stock, then I'm going to make my own highly gelatinous chicken stock. Um, If there's if it's called for a spice blend, I'm just going to make it myself. If it costs for a piece of meat, I'm going to use the highest quality piece of meat that I can possibly find. So when I'm doing traditional recipes, I, I just stick to I stick to it. I'm just not going to cook a pork chop in, you know, when I'm making some other pork chop for two hours because it, that's not necessary. I'm going to brine the pork chop and I'm going to cook it lightly so then it could be a slightly pink in the middle after we smother it. So, you know, I'm just I'm just viewing food through my lens um, and, and giving my own spin on it based on based off of my travels through this culinary industry. But I try to stick to the the tradition as, as much as I possibly can. I may bump up the flavor a little bit and change the cooking times, but it is I think it is close to authentic as possible. I wasn't sure if you and Catrice, our producer, was going to be friends because she thinks sugar doesn't have any place in grits. And you say you can use a little bit of season. I might tend to agree with you there, Kwame. I love sugar and grits. So I think there's a time and a place for it, right? I think if I'm eating shrimp and grits, no sugar and grits. But if I'm eating grits as a side, I put sugar and a slice of American cheese on top and butter and mix it in. She's rolling over yeah. her chair right now. <laughs> Catrice can't take it anymore. She's done. Hey, I think if you have grits in the morning, I like a little sugar in it. But like you said, if mm-hmm. we're having it like a like a dinner time, it doesn't need it. No, absolutely not. I like a little sweetness in the morning. Yeah. I'm sorry, Catrice. Don't get mad at me. Because I love, I love farina, too. So, oh yeah, like, I grew up eating farina and porridge. Like porridge in Jamaica is, you know, like farina with sugar and stuff. So, no cream of wheat. It's too. It's too. <laughs> it's, it's too. It's too healthy. It's like brown and, and no. I feel like I was forced to eat it. That's why I don't want to eat it. And I don't like oatmeal either. <laughs> uh, our producer Catrice is about to hang up this call. She's done talking. <laughs> she doesn't want to hear anymore now. <laughs> My America is so deeply personal. One of the reasons that you've been awarded distinctions like Chef of the Year, Best New Chef, Best Rising Chef is because your cooking is so original and so connected to who you are. What do you hope home cooks will take away from your book? And what have readers shared with you about their experience with the book? You know, I've gotten really great feedback from from cooking, from people cooking with the book that the recipes are really tight. They're really solid. You know, everything works. I want people to walk away with a better understanding of you know, black influence on American cuisine. I don't. I don't think you can talk about American cuisine without talking about West Africa in general. Um, you know, there were so many people that came over, but with them came their culture, you know, their beliefs, their traditions, and also their food ways. And that's what really inspired the way that we eat. You know, I, I would think. I know that before the transatlantic slave trade, people were not eating very good over here. <laughs> You know, um, you're eating for sustenance um, and things changed when when we got over here um, and it changed the whole dynamic of of, of how we eat. I, I honestly think globally. So. Um, so, yeah, I want people to take that away and also realize that we're a lot more similar than we are different. 
Wow, that's really awesome way to think about it. Because I think you're right. It was just eating for sustenance. It wasn't eating for pleasure. Yeah, it was eating gruel and and hardtack. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 not putting sugar in your grits. Yeah. And then when we came over here, we started putting sugar in the grits, man. You know. And they made them delicious. <laughs> So, okay, listen, we know that you're a past James Beard Award winner. And in June, you hosted the award ceremony in Chicago. Congrats on that. Very, Thank very you. cool. Tell us, was it as fun as it looked on Instagram? And did you, like, just love every second of it? I had a blast. I don't know if you could tell how much fun I was having, but I I don't know. It was, like, one of the most important, get emotional thinking about it, like, yeah. moments of my career, you know, from going. I mean, the last time they hosted the awards, I was up there receiving one, you know, think about that, like how a lot can change in, in two years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, years before that, I was in the nosebleeds trying to sneak in just to hear them like giving off the awards as a student volunteer at the CIA. Yeah. And then I w end up winning and then I ended up hosting. And I remember when I used to go, I used to go every year just to manifest that like one day they're going to call my name off that stage. And I would see like Carla Hall hosting and I would say to myself, like, I think I can do this. Like, <laughs> and that's a strange thing for a chef to think, like I can host an award show. But I was like, I think I could do this. And and for it to happen in front of all my peers and for people to be excited and applauding and laughing at my jokes, it there was no better feeling in the world. Um, you know, it almost felt better than winning the award itself. Yeah. I understand that for sure. That's one of the things I love about chefs, man. Nothing's too big. We can do all of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Never say never, ever. Chef, I'm just curious. Uh, CIA, you know, being an alumni, have they reached out? Have they asked you to come speak? Are you talking to the school? Yeah, I go back quite often. You know, I was there, I would say, like three months ago. I did a book talk um, or maybe two months ago for my cookbook. I'm actually going there next week to do a dinner at, I think, American Bounty or, cool. um, or Bocuse and to do a book talk to the students. I have a scholarship um, in my name that I give, you know, a underprivileged kid um, a full ride to the CIA, even money on their externship so they can get an wow. apartment and everything. That's great. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're in close contact, you know, quite often. We couldn't let Kwame go without asking him about his plans for the rest of the summer. Turns out there's a massive reunion in the works at the Salamander Hotel and Resort in Middleburg, Virginia. And it's a lot more than just immediate family. The best and brightest chefs of color from all over the country will be there celebrating black excellence in the food world. So I have this event called the Family Reunion. It's, it's an event that celebrates black and brown contributions to the food industry. You know, I've spent my fair share probably attending every single food event in the country, you know, coming up. And I, and I never felt that there was anything that, that celebrated that. Um, in its totality. So I, I partnered with Sheila Johnson uh, at Salamander Resort and Spa, and we, we host a four day food conference um, and it's with food and wine as well. And we bring in like 50 of the top change makers in the industry from food writers to food personalities, to chefs, to psalms, to beverage directors. We throw pretty much the biggest party in the world for four days, but also I don't want people to just leave with their uh, bellies and livers full. I want them to leave with their minds and hearts full. So we have like panel discussions and breakout sessions and meet and greets and book signings. You know, you can't have a black event without a cookout. But instead of your uncle behind the grill, it's like Rodney Scott and Virginia Ali from Ben's Chili Bowl and Matt Horn and Brian Furman, you know, slinging whole hog barbecue. We have a block party with famous DJs spinning and, 
everyone from Tiffany Derry to, you know, Eric Ajapong and Gregory Gourdet, like cooking the food. We have these big luncheons where it's like the best restaurant in the world for two hours with Eric Williams cooking and, and Claudia Martinez and um, Douglas Wilson and Justin Sutherland. So it's, um, it's, it's really great. It's fun. It's informative and it brings everybody together. So that's what I'm looking forward to. It's August 18th through the 21st. You can get your tickets online. That sounds fun. Yeah, the family reunion. It's great. What if I get the show to pay for me to go? That'd be great. Yeah, you, work, you should. You should. <laughs> Chef, we appreciate your time. Thank you for everything. Uh, the book is beautiful. It's fantastic. I think I'm going to go make your uh, hot chicken tonight. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Thanks, Chef. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you, everybody. This was a lot of fun. That was Chef Kwame on watching. You want to go to that family reunion? You'll find a link to it on our show page, ctpublic.org slash seasoned. And you can experience your own Nigerian barbecue by making Kwame's recipe for suya. You'll find that at ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, you'll meet two home cooks from our region who are competing in the PBS show, The Great American Recipe. And a celebrity chef pops in our Zoom to say hello. What's going on, guys? Oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Have you been watching The Great American Recipe on PBS? You should. It airs Friday nights. The show's hosted by Alejandra Ramos with chef judges Leah Cohen, Tiffany Derry, and Graham Elliott. Ten contestants from across the country compete by cooking family recipes inspired by their culinary heritage. We were lucky enough to speak with two contestants in our region, and we planned a little surprise for them. It's coming up. Irma Cadiz is a business owner, an actor, and a home cook in New York City. And Dan Rinaldi has been a firefighter for more than half his life now. He's a home cook in Providence, Rhode Island. Irma and Dan, welcome to Seasoned. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Hi, how are you? Better. Better for, for having you two guys in. Uh, Plum, we got we got some stars in our midst. <laughs> I know. I've been watching the show. It's so fun. Yeah, yeah. So we promise our listeners and you no spoilers. So we just want to set things up. As of this recording, The Great American Recipe on PBS has aired three episodes. We know that Irma, sadly, you were sent back to your home kitchen in the second episode. Mm -hmm. That's totally fine. I didn't make my varsity basketball team. And now look at me. Um, We've also seen you cook. So we still want your mofongo recipe. So we're going to ask about that in just a second. And uh, Plum, tell them about Dan. So far, you're still in the competition. Uh, you're channeling your Italian grandmother. So let's start a bit by just kind of getting into your culinary backgrounds. Uh, Irma, for our listeners who haven't seen the show, what cuisine is home for you? Well, I'm, I'm uh, raised by Dominican and Puerto Rican parents. I would probably say I, I steer more to the Puerto Rican side just because I grew up upstate in Rochester and that's the bigger community there. But again, every time I visit my Dominican family, there I was, the mangu and all of that. So it's you know, you could call it Caribbean cuisine, but it's it's Latin American cuisine. I love that. I love seeing a fellow 
Boricua. <laughs> and and you're proof positive that Dominicans and Puerto Ricans really do love each other. Oh, they do. That's that's. Uh, I wanted to spell that myth yeah. that there's a feud between Dominicans and Puerto Ricans because it's made up. I think those are old myths. Yeah, the Dominicans. I mean, they escaped BR and thought they didn't just come to the U.S. They came. They would try to hit Puerto Rico's shores because that would guarantee their citizenship. So they've been there forever. Exactly. <laughs> and it's they're all Chinese, exactly. So it's. <laughs> They are, they're all Tainos, all the slave boats ported on all, all the those islands. islands and the Spaniards did too. They all have the same stripes. So it's, I'm not, you know, aside from some uh, accent differences. It's all the same. These it's people are, the yeah, they're all dancing to the same music. So. Well, Dan, not of Taino uh, ancestry, Italian. You grew up with an Italian family, a, an Italian grandmother who always had the Sunday sauce bubbling. Is that where you got your love of cooking? It is. It is. That's where it all started out. There was always some form of cooking going on, you know, at my grandmother's house. And Providence is a city of three deckers. We call them three-story wood frame houses, one after the other, right on top of each other. And I grew up in the three-decker across the street from my grandmother's three-decker. And I just walk across and it was always something cooking. So that's where it all began, really, for me. Plum, I thought he was going to refer to a three-decker sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody needs to get lunch. So I've been on cooking competitions myself, you guys. I mean, tons of them. And it's never easy, even for someone who is a seasoned cook or of any level. Uh, The Great American Recipe is airing now, but it was recorded months ago. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you cooking in that beautiful barn in Virginia? Uh, Irma, can you start? Oh, I was going to throw that one to Dan. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, Dan, go ahead. It was a little bit of a culture shock for me, you know, I'm, I'm like in a very urban environment and to be in the middle of nowhere with, you know, the bugs and all of that other stuff. It was a bit of a culture shock for me, um, <laughs> but uh, it was beautiful. I mean, you know, the bond was beautiful. The facility was beautiful. You know, everything there was really great um, as far as the whole setup and everything. You know, once they got themselves all squared away, it was really good. But we were pretty much locked down the whole time we were there because we were there right in the middle of COVID. So it was like, you know, that was a double-edged sword because you couldn't go anywhere because you couldn't take a chance on, you know, one of the contestants getting it. Now you shut down the whole production. But on the flip side, I think, which was good, all of us, we were tested every single day so we could hang out together. So all 10 of us, I think, became very close because we were like in this bubble. It's just us together. So that was, you know, that was really good. Yeah, that comes across in the show, how close you guys all, you kind of became really good friends in there. I, that's one of the things I love the most about the show. Yeah, we definitely uh, developed a little family and we'll definitely, well, we've already started doing it. We start seeing each other whenever we can. If one happens to be in town, hey, what's going on, Dan, you know. That's fun. That'll probably be a lifelong bond. Yeah, yeah. I bet so. Um, Irma, you mentioned, I mentioned the mofongo recipe. Now, as a proud Puerto Rican who loves homofongo, I love to eat it. I don't love to make it because it is a labor of love. So I wonder if you could share with us what that recipe means for you, where you got it, and and just tell us how you you put it together. I've been working on it for years, to be honest with you. (laughs) I mean, you know, you grow up eating it in restaurants. My mom wasn't making it. Nor was mine. I only ate it at a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all Puerto Rican food is a labor of love. To be honest with you, um, amongst ourselves, we sell it pretty cheap. But the, to be truthful, if I opened a Puerto Rican restaurant, it would be a thing of elegance. Nobody's making pasteles. No. Nobody's making alcapurias. Except for yeah. except for Christmas. Yeah, even adding, exactly. And even adding um, some modern appliances, like a food processor, it doesn't matter. Like, 
it's still very, very laborious. This is not food that's going to be fried up quick. Yeah. But yeah, that being said, I've been working on that mofongo recipe for a while. And it, it was just the battles of, you know, how to get it the right consistency because uh, you can, it can end up too dry, you know, and you're experimenting with butter and all the different things. And it can also end up when you specifically with the shrimp recipe, it can also end up too soupy. I've had it in places where I feel like they drown it maybe in the sauce. With me, it was just a matter of adding that chicken stock or the broth into the mix a little bit with the butter. And that kept it a nice consistency where it was moist, not totally dry, but not swamped either. And it just gave it a little extra pinch. And I think that's for me. And I keep it pretty classic. If you look at the recipe, it's very classic. It's cilantro, it's garlic, it's salt and pepper. And that's what I tend to do with my food. I tend to, I started cooking at an older age. I mean, we all cooked when, with our kids when they were young, but you had to get that food out. And it was what I call 20 minute. If it wasn't sauteed or flipped over, it wasn't, you know, I had to work. But as they got older, I started, that's where you saw me really going in there and just trying to discover and rediscover our food's origins again and trying to pick up on some of the things that my mother made for me that maybe I didn't want to eat when I was younger. You know, she was um, Dominican. She was constantly trying to give me the avena con leche that we drink and the, the you know, the pollo fricasse and all that stuff. And I may not have appreciated that much when I was younger, but as I got older, I found myself wanting to learn how to make those foods. And that, that's been an, an adventure in of itself. And it gives a new appreciation to what it is that goes into those foods. Yeah, Arma, I was watching you chop up those shrimp for that uh, on the show. And I just kept, my, my chef brain's going, get a bigger knife, <laughs> get a bigger knife. What are you doing? <laughs> no, no, no. I brought my knife from home intentionally because I already knew I had never been on a cooking competition, but something said, Irma, they're going to have some sharp, brand new spanking knives. <laughs> yep. And I know myself, I am clumsy. I knew I was going to cut myself. And I just, I was like, that's not going to be me. I'm bringing my knife from home because I'm already used to it. And I know myself, I'm a nervous person to begin with. So I just figured cut all odds, bring your home knife that you're used to using. So at least that's one thing eliminated you bleeding all over your food. <laughs> which seemed to work for me. So, <laughs> but that's, that was my home knife. That was my kitchen knife that came out. Well, Dan, you had a chance to make a first impression with the judges when you served them calamari, which is like, I'm at the Rhode Island staple. But when you said you were making it, I was like, oh, really? You're going to, okay, okay. That's a bold move, man. Only a confident cook tries to fry calamari, especially on a competition show like that. And I mean, restaurant chefs even mess this stuff up. We've all had calamari that you chew it up, it tastes like a rubber band or like a, like a rubber washer in your mouth. Take us through the thinking behind this and what's the secret to your Rhode Island style calamari? Well, with the show, I wasn't sure what type of, you know, calamari I was going to get, obviously. You know, what they can sauce, you know, they're not jigging it right now out of the water. It's like for me, I know I can go to the fish market, they're jigging it out of the water and it's in the case, it's fresh. I have no concerns, that's going to be tender regardless. Yeah. So for this, you know, I soaked it in buttermilk beforehand, you know, to maybe break it down a little bit. Um, but again, it's a time issue as well. You know, you're on the clock. So it was like, okay, well, this break it down quick enough, you know, soften it up enough, you know, so it'll su survive the frying. It's not like you said, eating a mouthful of rubber bands. So I was like, right out of the gate is going to be all or nothing either. <laughs> I'm going home by tonight or, you know, we'll see what happens. So you think that secret is that buttermilk in there too, huh? I mean, really, I soak, when I make fried chicken, I will always soak it in buttermilk overnight as well. Same yeah. thing with the calamari. Same thing. And I think maybe the seafood's a little more forgiving. You know, like, you don't need to soak it as long. Like with the chicken, you'll do it overnight or something like that. Where with the seafood, you know, seeing it's a little more, whatever you want to call it, tender or whatever the case is. Um, Less dense. Know, like, it's quick, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a lot quicker for seafood. And you put those peppers in there, which I really think of as a as a Rhode Island staple. Putting those spicy those those cherry peppers in there, uh, and you actually fry those as well, right? Yeah, they're, they're not in the deep fryer. Actually, you know, those got fried like in the pan when I tossed everything together real quick. Yeah. But that's like you you have to be careful because now you have a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of butter and stuff in that pan, and a little bit of the pepper juice. But if you put too much pepper juice, now you're going to sog out all that crispiness. So. It's a real fine line right there. Wait, do you guys know that Dan is like the pepper king? Like he grows those peppers <laughs> in his backyard and he sent them all to us. And we've all been cooking with Dan's homegrown peppers ever since the show aired, making recipes and stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. Look at you. Yeah. And what do you, Edema, what do you think of his peppers? They're great. Like I, I normally don't like hot stuff. Uh, you know, I have to be very careful with how, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little baby when it comes to that, but my boyfriend loved them. He made, he mixed them up with a bunch of things. We have like two or three left, but we've still been making things. <laughs> we'll send them. We'll send more out. Now, Nikki, Nikki's growing them. Nikki just actually left Rhode Island. She was, she was actually here um, for a couple of days showing her son, you know, uh, Providence college. So fun. You know, so we hung out for the last couple of days and uh, had a great time. You know, she'd come from, up Irma's way as well, you know. So, like Irma said, you know, you know, we're close enough when yeah. it comes to that. Like for thirty plus years, I've been going to New York City after Thanksgiving, and uh, we met Irma the last time we went up there. Yeah. So we really we got close. That's great. I gave Dan some of my coquito, <laughs> and I took Nikki to um, La Fonda. There's a Puerto Rican restaurant here that was really nice to us. And La Fonda, yeah. Edma, I hate to interrupt you, but we want to interrupt this broadcast to bring in someone that, Dan, I know you're particularly fond of. We heard you're a big fan. Ladies and gentlemen, Chef Michael Simon, welcome to the group. What's going on, guys? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> oh, my what? God. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding me. Chef, how are you? Uh, I'm here in Vegas. It's about 112 here. What? So I'm sweating for no particular reason. I'd like to apologize in advance. Well, nice segue, Chef. We're talking peppers here with Dan and his wonderful uh, calamari he made, Rhode Island style with those peppers. And we read, Dan, that you know one of the chefs you've always wanted to meet or talk to your entire life has been Michael Simon and just so happens yep. to be a friend of ours on the show here. So uh, our producer, Robin, reached out and... We thought we'd have Michael come on here and wish you good luck on the program. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, my God. You know, and just like showing my age and everything like that. And I'm not even sure I didn't name right. But when I first seen Michael for the first time, it was like a show on the Food Network. I think it was like the guy, his name was Wayne Holly Brockman, I think. Or something. Oh, yeah. The melting pot. We're going back to 1998, Dan. I love wow. it. Right. And yeah. his, his, his laugh was like infectious. You know, it's like whenever I would hear Michael, you know, like I would just be happy immediately. So then I've been following his, you know, his career and everything like that. And then when COVID hit, I'm the least techie person you will ever meet in your entire life. I have zero social media. I'm horrible when it comes to all that. But my wife, you know, she's pretty good with that. And she was able to watch all the segments. Well, we were able to watch all the segments that Michael did during COVID. So it was like pretty great from his house and everything like that, you know, and every day, it would, you know, even though the COVID times were difficult for everybody, it like brought a smile to my face just to be able to hear him laughing and doing his thing. So, oh yeah, no, I've been following him for years. Thanks, Dan. Are you you're having fun doing the show? You're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great, great time. Great time. Great people. Great time. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a bad thing to say about it, truthfully. That's awesome. Chef, you got any advice for uh, home cooks? Obviously, you've done one or two of these competitions. You know a little something about too many. Them. Uh, one or two too many. Um, you know, I, like I always, 
I think whether it's like home cooks or chefs or, you know, anybody that's doing it, it's really about just keeping it simple and falling back on technique. I think sometimes people try to get a little too cutesy and that's when they get in trouble. And it's like, you know, if, if you're going to make a dish, make sure the basics are great. Make sure if you're searing it, it's seared good. It's seasoned correctly. Like those are the kind of things that help you win more often than not. That's good advice right there for sure. Uh, Dan, so listen, you're a giant fan of Michael Simon. Yeah. He's right here. You got a chance to ask him anything you want. Now's the chance, aside from holding a reservation for you, of course. <laughs> and Edema, Edema, if you have a question for him too, fire away. I think I have his book in my living room and I forgive me, I haven't like opened it yet, but I think I have his cookbook. Make the corned beef. I do the corned beef every year. Two weeks, I sit it in the brine every year and do the corned beef. Oh, I love that. Out of one of the books. And then don't let that Bobby Flay bring you down anyway. He's very <laughs> mean to you. <laughs> That's, don't don't worry about him. I got I mean, we've been friends for 25 years. I got him in check. Like oh. sometimes I let him win on television, but I take all his money <laughs> on the golf course, so it balances out. <laughs> yeah, you two guys are hysterical together. Yeah, we we have a good time. Any advice for them about life post the food competition show? Gosh, you know, like I don't want to say my world hasn't changed since I started doing television because it certainly has changed, but I don't think it's much different than, than any advice I would give anybody in life in general. It's like, you know, be yourself, stick to the things that are important to you. Don't let TV exposure and things of that nature kind of change you and just continue to be you. Like, you know, I, I come from a Greek Sicilian family. So the minute that I step out of check, my parents put me back in check very quickly, even, even at 53 years old. But stick to the things that are most important to you. Be yourself. And at this point in your life, you, you know who your friends are. You know who your friends aren't. And, and hold those people dear and close to you. And, and just continue to be you and do what got you there. And remember, salt is your friend. <laughs> salt will always be your friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Chef, we appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day to join us and uh, speak to the contestants of the show. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us. We appreciate it. Oh, God. Absolutely, guys. Good luck. Continued success. And, and stay well. And, and Read the darn book for crying out loud. <laughs> Try a few recipes. Well, thanks, guys. And, and Daniel, thanks for watching since the, the old uh, melting pot days. That was a long time ago. Whenever I get this, sometimes Food Network will repeat those things for, you know, for giggles. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, was I terrible on television. So it's oh just, my God. It, go, it goes to show you, you could be really bad at something, but if you do it enough, you could figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> it worked for me. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. All right, guys. Have a great day. All right, take care. Thank you. Chef, hope to see you soon. Take care. Ciao. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. That's great. That's great. We were very excited to do that. So we're, we're glad Chef Michael Simon could join us for a few minutes there, man. So how cool was that? Very cool. We uh, Before we let you go, we just want to talk about the things that you do outside of this show. Dan, I wonder if you could talk to us about life outside of the kitchen. The firefighters you work with, I'm sure, did not appreciate the time that you were off. Did they bust your chops? Were you like, oh, Dan, he thinks he's a big TV chef now. Now he can't put out fires. I mean, what was what was the dynamic like? Yeah, well, now it's coming because really now that it's being aired is when I'm catching it because in that September, October time when we did it, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, he's on vacation or whatever the case is. But now that it's on television, because here's how it goes. However it plays out, they're going to be all over me in every single episode I win and say that I should be sent home. And then if I end up losing in an episode, they're going to be absolutely furious. Yeah. That's what they do. Only they can beat me up. You know, the judges can't beat me up. Nobody can beat me up. 
That's great, man. That's just how it is. What are friends for, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Friends like that. Oh, my God. Uh, And Irma, we got to ask you a little bit about your cocktail business that we read about. The Coquito Lady in, in NYC, right? Yeah, Coquito Lady NYC. Um, I feel like I'm with a celebrity. You're the Coquito Lady. Oh, wow. I just put two and two together. Yeah, we, I started in July, just like everybody else during COVID. Um, I literally bought a cooler and hit the streets, and I was calling it Christmas in July because what I was doing was I was making ices out of the Coquitos. I was, I was selling frozen Coquito, among other drinks, because like I told you, I'm Dominican as well. So I, was, I sell Coquito. I sell Morisoñandos, everything with rum in it. I sell limonadas that I put Brugal in, you know, and that's like fresh squeezed limes with brown sugar. And I, you know, because Dominicans, we think that limes cure everything. Um, so, <laughs> um, there's a few, we introduced piña coladas this summer frozen and then, yeah, it evolves. It's a seasonal business. Cause I run from summer through the holidays, but you'll see it evolve as the holidays come nearer and, and it's the bottles full out. Awesome. Well, congratulations to you both. Uh, we look forward to continue watching Dan and see how the, the trail takes you. We thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to us about your experience cooking on the Great American Recipe and sharing your stories and recipes with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And shout out to Chef Michael Simon, huh? Yeah. Thank you for having Michael on. Dan, you had the chance. You could have said, Michael, I need a reservation. You could have made it oh. happen. <laughs> well, when I go out to Vegas, believe me, I'm showing up. <laughs> Good man. Good man. Thank you both so much. I got to get some of that coquito. (laughs) That was Irma Cadiz and Dan Rinaldi. As of this recording, Dan is still in the competition. So tune in. CPTV, Friday night, 1030, and cheer him on. The finale airs Friday, August 12th. Home cooks, you can make Irma's mofongo and Dan's fried calamari recipes yourselves. It's like you're part of the family. Just go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken, Katie Talarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Our summer interns are Anya Grodowski and Mira Raju. To keep up with the latest on Season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or just follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and beyond. See you next week.